page account of her spiritual life was published. Edited, polished, and in some measure conventionalized and stripped of its spontaneity by Pauline, whom she named her literary executrix, it was sent to all the Carmel convents in France in lieu of a more standard obituary notice. The surplus of the run of two thousand copies sold for four francs apiece. Six months later it was reprinted to satisfy demand. A subsequent edition included letters of praise from bishops and other members of the clergy. By 1915, nearly a million copies were in print. A separate publication anthologized the hundreds of thousands of letters, arriving at a rate of 500 a day, 1,000 a day by 1925, that bore witness to miracles granted by Thérèse's intercession. Story of a Soul, as it was eventually titled, was not a novel, but it shared a romantic sensibility and cherished plot elements with immensely popular 19th-century fiction, books such as Les Miserables, Little Women, and David Copperfield, whose characters had entered the culture at large. Marrying romance to classic elements of hagiography, apparitions of the Virgin, temptations by the devil, symbolic dreams, presentiments of glory, conversion, Thérèse wrote of the death of her self-sacrificing and affectionate mother, of the devotion of her father, of her striving to become a saint, and of the reversals she suffered. Her life on the page was dramatized by the irresistible alchemy of tuberculosis, the same literary disease that ennobled and transfigured the heroines of Victor Hugo, Louisa May Alcott, and Charles Dickens, and that acted as a powerful accelerant in Thérèse's own corporeal and spiritual life. Unconsciously, Thérèse created a perfect vehicle for conveying the teachings of the Church, because she made the rigors of mysticism incidental to human drama. Story of a Soul is a love story, a desperate and feverish one, involving tears and palpitations, wild hopes and bleak anguish, the audacity of a commoner who set her heart on a king, a child bride, who, in her zeal for Christ, her beloved, defied one after another church official, until at fourteen she arrived in Rome to petition the Pope to allow her premature entry into a convent. Consumers of more contemporary and conventional romance might find her narrative quaint and mannered, suffused with earnestness, lacking in irony. Reading Thérèse is akin to having a conversation with a disconcertingly precocious child. She has that quality of being awkward and artful at the same instant, forcing our abrupt awareness of both her depth and her vulnerability. She bears her soul, and to witness this is to realize how seldom humans do. To me it seemed like the story of a steel bar, Albino Luciani, who would later become Pope John Paul I, commented on the book's original title, succinctly identifying the paradox of the little flower. Few personalities have been so obscured by sentiment, few wills so cloaked by feminine convention. The romantic formulas that Thérèse used to tell her story contributed not only to its vast popularity, but also to the profound misunderstanding of an ambitious and intelligent young woman a shy neurotic who fashioned a martyr's death from circumstances that threatened to withhold all means toward the glorious sainthood she envisioned for herself. No one provides more stark an example of the radical nature of discipleship to Christ. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself, 
Jesus admonished. Leave the dead to bury their own dead, he told the would-be Christian, the one who wanted to first honor his biological father. Is it possible to have a moderate belief in God? Can we believe in God and continue to live a life of moderation? They knew too well how to ally the joys of this earth to the service of God, Therese said of the good Catholics in her hometown, separating herself from those who didn't look for total and obliterating union with the divine, who didn't believe that to love Christ demanded a complete sacrifice of self. Indeed, to her father's pious friends, the god of Therese Martin might have appeared as violent as the devil, her heaven as annihilating as the atheist's last breath. Looking back on her life from the vantage of her twenty-two years, having arrived at a moment when, in her own estimation, she could cast a glance on the past, she was able to divide it into distinct periods. The first of these began and ended with her mother, Zélie. Zélie, christened Marie-Azélie Guérin, was born in Orne, Normandy, in 1831, the middle child of a professional soldier, Isidore Guérin, and a woman of the peasant class, Louise Jeanne Mace. At nineteen, Zélie applied as a postulant to the Sisters of Charity of St. Vincent de Paul, envisioning a life of service to the sick and destitute. She believed she was called to this work. Two, she sought a welcome and comfort in the church that she had never received at home, refuge from a mother who indulged her one son and persecuted her daughters to the point that Zélie would one day recall a youth as sad as a shroud. Sincere in her vocation, she was nonetheless refused. She was turned away so bluntly and without explanation that most accounts blame her cruel mother's secret meddling. Without income or inheritance, Zélie didn't have the luxury of time to mourn. She applied herself to discovering the future. Would God reveal another different path? See to the making of Point d'Alençon, an inner voice answered. Obedient, inspired, Zélie enrolled in the famous lace-making school of Alençon, where she discovered a talent that allowed her, after only two years' study, to establish a business in her own home, accepting commissions and employing local workers to help execute her designs. Twenty-two years old, she began gathering the dowry her parents had denied her. She regarded her older sister's recent acceptance into the visitation convent at Le Mans not with envy but with wistfulness. Her sister Marie-Louise intended, as she herself said, to become a saint. Zélie would have to content herself with a family, children she could consecrate to the will of God. When Zélie's guiding voice sounded again, it used the language of Annunciation, indicating Louis Martin as her husband-to-be. This is he whom I have prepared for you, she heard, as she passed the not-so-young gentleman on Alençon's bridge of St. Leonard. Was this an imagined introduction, an unconscious romantic embellishment? The location makes us wonder, for bridges are structures of union, connecting shores, leaping obstacles, archetypal meeting places for lovers, even lovers who are strangers. The story of the courtship of Thérèse Martin's parents has come to us through their daughters, relayed in the same tone of inevitability as that which informs every creation myth, great and small. 
It is perhaps more true than factual. But wherever it occurred, a glance might have been enough to establish Zélie and Louis as kindred souls. Louis Martin, born in 1823 in Bordeaux, was also the child of a soldier. His father, a captain in Napoleon's army, pursued a career that routinely uprooted his family. Still ambitious for his son's future, on his retirement, Captain Martin settled in Alençon for the educational resources it offered. Louis, artistic and melancholy, was not a gifted student, however. At twenty-two, he traveled from Normandy to the renowned Swiss monastery of St. Bernard, attracted by the remote beauty of the Alps and the vision he had of himself helping travelers in need. Like his wife-to-be, Louis was rejected as a religious. Unlike Zélie, he was given a reason. He did not know Latin. Louis came home to study under a classics master and failed spectacularly, suffering a nervous collapse from the strain. Quiet and contemplative, when he recovered he settled on a trade that suited such a personality, a refined and meticulous trade similar to the one that occupied Zélie. After apprenticeships in Strasbourg and Paris, Louis returned to Alençon as a clockmaker and jeweler, a man who fashioned his own retreat from the world, who marveled at the beauty of nature and refused the temptations of sex. The match between Zélie Guérin and Louis Martin was facilitated by Louis's mother, then enrolled in the lace-making school, and on July 13, 1858, the two were married. The ceremony took place at midnight, as was the custom, in Alençon's Notre-Dame Cathedral, and the couple began their life together in material, if not psychic, comfort. Having succumbed 